Well, hello and welcome to another episode of A Moment with Eric Fleming. Um, I am Eric Fleming. And I guess... The best way to, to introduce um, what I'm going to talk about tonight is um, to paraphrase a gospel song. Um, said, we've been in this place long enough and the mountainside has been rough, but the struggle is over for us. And what I'm referring to is, as of yesterday, which was June 28th, 2020, the state flag of Mississippi, um, in its current state, has been struck down and that it will be replaced. And for those who ain't quite hip to what's going on, the state of Mississippi flag since 1894 has had one red stripe, one white stripe, and one blue stripe. And in this Canton corner, which is the same corner that on the American flag you would see the stars in the blue field, there was the Confederate battle flag or the battle flag of the Northern Army of Virginia which many of us, whether correctly or incorrectly, refer to it as the rebel flag, right? Or the Confederate flag. But his actual title is the battle flag of the Northern Army of Virginia, which was, I believe, the regiment that Robert E. Lee personally commanded. But the Mississippi legislature voted to remove that on June 27th, 2020, and created a process to replace it the following day. And all I can really say is just repeat that last part of the chorus of that song, The Struggle is Over, in that sense. And it's been a battle for many of us who lived in Mississippi a long time. 
And there will be people that will say, well, it was just a flag. And we should be focused in on other things. And I get that. But to be honest, saying that to somebody like me is like just imagining somebody trying to tell someone Jewish that if their state flag had a swastika on it, Don't worry about it, it's just a flag. Just a piece of cloth, right? And you know, and people get upset about, I wouldn't call it, why would you compare it to a swastika? Because for black people it is. Now for white people it means something totally different. People of my generation, it means dudes of hazard. You went to the University of Mississippi, Ole Miss. That's part of the culture, especially around football season. But for black folks, it was a sign of terror. It was a sign of oppression. It was a reminder of the peculiar institution that got us to the United States in the first place called slavery. And where I am a proponent of history being preserved, I never was comfortable and I never was proud that the state flag of Mississippi had the battle flag of the Northern Army of Virginia on it. And like I've said before, and other people that understand the history and the art even of flag making, we know that that design was incorporated in a lot of the other flags in the South, but done in a more creative way. You know, Arkansas created a diamond. Texas incorporated a Confederate naval flag. Um, Alabama and Florida have the original, quote-unquote, St. Andrew's Cross. You know. Tennessee has the colors. Um, so I get that. You know, Georgia's flag kind of looks like the official stars and bars of the Confederate flag, you know. And they've been slick with it, and that's fine. Slick is acceptable. But just out and out overt, yeah, it's a problem. 
Mississippi kind of thumbed their noses at the black community all that time. You know, and it's been tough. If you're a state trooper and you're black, that flag is on your shoulder, right? You know, if you're at a national meeting or even at the nation's capital, the flag that represented Mississippi was that flag, right? And it was just always, always a problem for black folks, for the most part. Because there are some black folks that don't care. It's a lot of them, actually. And there are some, you know, they just say, it's just a piece of cloth. When are we going to deal with the real issues? And my argument was always, who would take us seriously about anything? If I'm sitting up here saying I represent the best interests of black people, they say, where are you from? I said, from Mississippi. I'm sorry, I I get that you want to be helpful, but kind of distracted by the fact that this state that you come from sends a message out with a state flag that y'all don't give a damn about black people. Now, that wasn't necessarily true for most quote-unquote leaders and politicians. But that was a message that conveyed, conveyed so that young black folks, the minute that they got a degree, got the hell on. And to an extent, some young white folks too that weren't down with that lost cause um, philosophy, right? That the United Daughters of the Confederacy so masterfully um, crafted, along with the help of movies like The Birth of the Nation and all that. Uh, the eloquent speeches of uh, Henry Grady Right. that allowed that mythology about the war of northern aggression to permeate for generations in the South. So, you know, I grew up in Illinois, so, you know, we had a totally different mindset. I mean, Abraham Lincoln was a lawyer from Illinois who cried out loud. And he ended up being the president during that time. And so our perspective of the Civil War, of course, was the Union was awesome. And black folks should ever be indebted to Abraham Lincoln. Right? It's the way we were supposed to be indoctrinated. And Lincoln was this great president because he freed the black people. Although technically, more accurately, the Emancipation Proclamation was an act of defiance. It's 
propaganda at best because it only affected the states that the Union was at war with. And when I say Union, I mean the United States of America at that time, right? Because Confederates were the Confederate States of America. And those states that broke away from the United States, including Mississippi, were enemies, traitors, if you will, for their own selfish economic desires and wants. And their main objective was to maintain slavery because that was the tool that, that, that provided that capitalist adventure of agriculture to continue in the South. And it gave the South incredible, not only economic power, but political power. Most people in America can't even conceive that at one time the richest man in the United States of America was a Mississippian. That's hard to even fathom in this day and age. But it's true. So, you know, I grew up with a totally different concept of what this war was about. But that was the wrong concept too, right? But to come down to the South where, you know, the rebel, the, the lost cause, South will rise again, right? All that played into the minds of these young white men and women that are now my contemporaries and even my elders in the white community to an extent. I mean, they, they had to, they studied that. You know, ever since the end, the war at the turn of the century even. Because you got to think about how these folks really, really, really they wanted to redeem themselves. Right? And it's no different than how Japan right? Redeemed itself. And to some extent Germany, right? Because part of the deal at the end of World War II was that neither one of those countries would have a standing army for any reason, right? Over time, it's been somewhat relaxed, but the original terms of the treaty that neither one of those countries could ever have a standing army again. So instead of spending their money on defense, like the United States does, 
they spent their money strictly on science and technology, the money that would have been the defense. And so, even though they didn't win the war for conquest and domination in a totalitarian sense, they have, at one point, they had dominated the electronics market, Japan did. And, and Germany has had a niche in the automotive market, technology-wise. And uh, because they refocused their energies, whereas the United States, whatever technological advances came forward, example, the Internet, it came through our money in defense. Now, of course, NASA played a big part in that too, which was the end result of us basically rescuing, slash kidnapping, it all depends on what side of the issue you're on, all these German scientists who were designing missiles, rocket missiles, for wartime purposes, they ended up being the masterminds or part of the mastermind team that eventually led to Neil Armstrong walking on the moon, right? So these guys readjusted. Well, in the South, the readjustment was... Just the opposite. Came violent. Right? So, just imagine you're white and within five years after you and your family members have fought in a war to try to keep slavery, now the very state you live in, the most powerful politicians in the state were former slaves. Just imagine how you might feel if you were the slave master or you were even just the overseer, right? You benefited from the largesse of the plantation of the industry. Now you have these black men calling the shots in the state capitals. And a white man as governor that was sympathetic to them Seems like a lot to swallow to go from the oppressor to, let me say oppressed, but downtrodden. Right?
So these these black legislators, for example, they didn't try to exact revenge. They just went to work. What was the most important thing that they needed? What their people needed. And they put a lot of focus in on public education. Right? Now these white folks, they they upset. And instead of developing a strategy to work with them, build a coalition to help get them reinstated, they just basically said, we just going to take it back. And that's what they did, violently. That's why the Klan was created which eventually led to the White Citizens Council, right? But it was like all these people who were deemed in Mississippi as heroes and gentlemen are the reason why we have the term redneck, literally. Because the rednecks were as bad, if not worse, than the Klan themselves. They were terrorists. They were called rednecks because they wore red handkerchiefs or bandanas around their necks to identify who they were. So it was those individuals who had so successfully waged a war, a terroristic war against black leadership in the South, especially in Mississippi. And uh, it just, it culminated with the Constitution of 1890 in Mississippi, which was created to disenfranchise African Americans and to never allow them to have seats of power ever again. And so the ironic thing of all that is the lone black delegate to the state convention was Isaiah T. Montgomery who was the mayor and founder of Mount Bayou which was supposed to be the black city that was exempt from all of this crazy stuff. It was just the one spot that was protected. It was the reservation for black people basically if they chose to live there. If every black person had moved to Mount Bayou, Mount Bayou would have been the largest city in Mississippi. Larger than Jackson. But the ironic thing is, as I say T. Montgomery is the son of the slave who literally ran Jefferson Davis's plantation 
in Claiborne County, close to what is now called Alcorn State University. Actually, to be more precise, it's right near um, this is not the Windsor Ruins, but it's close. And because uh, I don't know why in my mind there's a connection with Jefferson College, right, in Adams County. Um, don't know, but I do know that Isaiah T. Montgomery's dad was basically the black slave that ran that plantation during the war. And though, though he was promised it, Isaiah's dad was denied access to the land once the war was over. Hence the move north in the Delta and Mount Bayou being created. Is what it is. Right? And so I have family from Mount Bayou. That's a disclaimer, I guess. Um, but I say all that And I give all that kind of history and connectivity to kind of tell you what the mindset was of these white men. And so now with this new constitution, 1890 constitution, four years later, the legislature adopts a new flag. Because up until that point, Mississippi didn't really have a flag and the only one that had been recognized was the Magnolia flag, which was last flown before Mississippi seceded. And so they came up with, nearly 30 years after the war had ended, a symbol to remind the world that the South was gonna rise again. That they were, they, they were, as a matter of fact, they had succeeded in reversing the power base that African-Americans, newly freed slaves, had acquired. And they, that's what that flag was all about. That Mississippi, in its original glory, was back. And we will make sure that black folks will never be in power again. That was their intent. And that is the history behind 
that flag design for the state of Mississippi. It was a thumb your nose at the United States government, which had just reinstated them. So, I say just reinstated, but, you know, wasn't even 30 years since the end of the war. So, because of that history, because of what that flag was really supposed to symbolize, I can't really get into, because that wasn't my experience, why that flag would be heritage. The closest thing to heritage for me about that flag would be the Dukes of Hazzard and Colonel Reb, the car. That's pretty much it. Um, you know, you watch Hee Haw and all that stuff, and Hee Haw didn't really throw it in your face. You know, it wasn't like the Grand Ole Opry show rubbed it in our face. Although you saw it. But these entertainers were pretty savvy and pretty sensitive to what was going on. And they stayed above the fray. Their job was to entertain the masses. But anyway, they they you know, people people knew. And even though Duke Hazard was a funny show, a lot of us got what that flag meant. Especially after watching Roots. We really got what that flag meant, right? <laughs> if you didn't read Nam book, as we say down here, Roots got you hip to the game on what that flag was about. So... But the reality was that flag was created to be a thumb in your nose, a middle finger, you know, whatever you want to call it, to the United States government. And the Clarion College said that we're back, white people are back in charge, and that's the way it's going to be. Kind of helps set the tone, right? So the question becomes, now that that flag is officially no, no longer the state flag, where do we go from here? And we'll talk about that on the other side.
So the question becomes, we're back. No way, the question becomes, where do we go from here now, right? So, collectively, specifically, I mean, it is, it is a very important that that symbol is not the official symbol of the state of Mississippi anymore. It's not the official symbol of any state anymore in that blatant form. Right? And so that distraction is gone. Right? Because... Like I said earlier, it's like, how can I sit there and say, hey, you know, I want to join a discussion about change and all that. And it's like, you're from Mississippi, right? With that flag. It always was a distraction. But now, let me just say how I feel, first of all. I, I mean, as somebody who fought that fight, right, was vilified by people who are villains, <laughs> right, I mean, I say that, but I mean, you know, when you, your name is Coon Eric Fleming, um, that, you know, Uppity Negro thinks he can do whatever, and da da da. And, you know, you're getting debating people on talk shows and you're giving speeches at rallies and you're trying to muster up support to change the flag and all that. When you put it out there, and then you fell short. And then you come back with another opportunity and it's like the political will didn't match the personal will, right? And people didn't want to, they want to play the game. So I'll just be blunt. If I was a white guy, and I started a political action committee uh, dealing with the flag. Probably would have had some buy-in. If I was a conservative white dude, a Republican even, would have had some buy-in. But me being who I am, And, you know, asserting it. I mean, people people kind of felt that that was ballsy to do. But, you know, like I said, well, we appreciate you doing that. But I'm not ready to commit resources for it to happen. Which kind of makes me wonder, well, were you serious about 
doing it. You're going to give it lip service, but you ain't really trying to make that happen. But nonetheless, Mississippi Armor Pack was set up. Many other organizations were there. You know, we, and uh, I mean, even AHF, the AIDS Health Foundation, got into it. I mean, it was just, you know, it was a documentary being filmed, you know, and I wonder if that guy came back. Don't know. But you, you know that you put your time and effort into trying to make this happen. You were the one introducing bills and doing that. I mean, you were, you were in the fight. To see it finally happen is an incredible relief. Because I don't want to die with that flag still up. I did not want to leave this earth knowing that the state flag of Mississippi where my son actually, I think at one point, had to do a pledge to it. Um... He didn't have to, uh, you know, just had that flag flying throughout the rest of his life, or at least the time that I was on the planet during his life, right? So to see that flag, that, I mean, that to me, y'all can take it however the hell you want, but to me, to see that flag change is just like seeing a black man become president of the United States in my lifetime. And to know that my son before he turned 21 years old saw both of those things happen. I think that's absolutely phenomenal. That in my son's lifetime, those things happened. That he could consciously see it. And his contemporaries, his peers, Look at that as normal, as opposed to utterly historic how my generation perceives it, right? Never thought it would happen, perception, you know, reaction. Whereas, like, it's pretty cool in my son's eyes. So, just for that, just to know my son can choose to stay in Mississippi and live in a Mississippi that, at least symbolically, does not disrespect him for who he is. So that means an incredible lot to me. 
And whatever little bitty role that I played to lead to this point, I'm honored to have played it. All the scars that I took, to see it actually happen in my lifetime is incredible. And the fact that I know a lot of the people that played a major role in that personally means a lot. I mean, I'm an old man, but at least I wasn't like a 90-year-old man who had no idea who these folks were. Maybe they would be the sons and daughters of the people I served with or whatever, grandchildren even, and they were making the decision, but People that I actually served in government with that played a major role to make that happen, black and white, Democrat and Republican. For every member of the Black Caucus who is still alive, that has ever served in the state of Mississippi legislature. This was a major victory for us. Because it wasn't just me. And it wasn't one of those, this is Eric cause it's like getting rid of the tax on overtime pay. That was an Eric cause. It still is an Eric cause, by the way. <laughs> but that was one of the few things without any equivocation or debate. No matter what our philosophy, background, region of the state we came from, we all unanimously agreed that flag had to change, that flag had to go. Of course, being politicians and legislators, you know, policymakers, we were not in total agreement of the strategy. But we fought the battle as well as we could. And the next group, and the next group, and the next group kept it going. Until finally the group that's in there now pulled it off. And so part of the momentum that led to that, I think I'm going to get on that tomorrow. Right? But I hope in an interesting way. But to personally see that happen is just an incredible sense of relief. Yeah, this it's over with, it's done. We did that. Right. So now that is done. Where is the next battle? Well, there's two battles that has to be fought. And part of my crusade I has to be based on how 
my 55 years has been shaped. What I have learned and what I understand is needed. One. If black lives matter, then we need to show it. I will repeat that. And we may just get into that in another thing. But I just wanted, and I'm going to touch on some things in a brief thing, brief way. If black lives matter, why don't we show it? And then the second thing is determining how much black lives are worth. Because my argument is that black lives matter. And since I am black, I do believe my life matters. So I am in agreement with this statement. Black lives matter. Because people that I love are black. People that I'm around at work are black. And I believe their lives matter. So, so be it. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> and when people throw that argument, all lives matter, of course they do. But we're not in church. We're talking about the significance of African Americans in the United States. The fact that a symbol that has disrespected them for over 120 years is finally coming down. <coughs> and so now the challenge is, now that that's over with, and we seem to agree now, at least based on TV commercials and billboard advertising and all this other stuff, other capitalistic acknowledgments, that black lives do matter. So how can black people show that black lives matter? Right? And then the other thing is, how do we determine what a black life is worth? Not just esoterically. Concretely. Right? Seriously. From an economic standpoint. What are we worth? Because once we figure out once we worth, then we can go to the next step. How do we channel it? Right? Because my friends, I have friends that have pushed really, really hard and they have pushed us to read books <coughs> and to engage in practices to support black businesses, right? And if you, you're conscious about it, you will consciously make the effort to do it. Even if the propensity is that most of these black businesses are in the food industry, <laughs> you try to support as many businesses that you see that you can, right? And you understand that it's not Walmart. So it may not be the most cost efficient 
product. It may not be the least expensive product. So you, you know, but you, you look at it. And based on what you need, Try to make that happen. You try. So, so how do you determine the worth? But we'll get into the that later too. Because we've got to have detailed discussions about those type of things. But I think we it's important for us to get into the mindset of what we need right now. We need to understand how much we're worth, how much a black life is worth. But then we've got to go back and to show that lives matter. And to me, the best way to show that our lives matter is that we actually stop taking each other's life. Right? Right? Now, the people that need to hear this will not. Not the folks that ain't really cool with an old man and a podcast. They are into what we call gangbanging. I don't know what it's called now. You know, but... They're too busy living that lifestyle, doing that thing, which in essence has been just as detrimental, if not more so, than health-related causes like heart disease and diabetes and hypertension. It's been more dangerous than encounters with white police officers. And I don't have that magic voice. I don't have that magic verbal antidote. All I have is a wish and a desire and a strong, forceful opinion that the violence amongst ourselves has to stop. Not mitigated, not controlled. It has to stop. Because... 
We are not expendable. I've said this before, and I will say it until we get it. We're not expendable. We don't have the luxury based on our rank in the population of this country to basically make make ourselves extinct. And even though we don't have that luxury of extinction, that's the path we're going. And so when we see people protest and we see the t-shirts and we, we see the corporate logos, even it says Black Lives Matter, the question becomes, is that really true? Do black people really think that black lives matter? Especially in certain areas of the country, certain cities. Chicago, are you listening? It's it's sad to even have that conversation, but it is what it is. White people talk about genocide all the time. And they they frame their political philosophy around fighting that. Right? But we don't. Our political philosophy is always about protecting ourselves from the enemy without the enemy on the outside that we never deal with aggressively the enemy within. In some cases, our very own children. Right? So, if we are going to go forward at this point, if we are going to make that day, June 27, 2020, significant other than a symbol being removed, then we've got to address those two points. How do we show within our own community that Black Lives Matter and what is a black life truly worth? I think if we seriously address those two points, then the more significant June 2020 becomes. And I will go even further that it will legitimize what December 1865 was all about. Right? So, 
I'm going to leave it with that. But I just want it on record how proud I am of the uh, Mississippi legislature, a body that I had the privilege of serving for nine years in under the leadership of Philip Gunn and Delbert Hoseman. And especially to the members of the Mississippi Legislative Black Caucus. I am so proud of, of, of all of them. And this moment in history has taken place. And for all of those folks in Mississippi that supported me and supported the caucus, um, supported this flag change, you know, from all different parts of the state, from all different socioeconomic demographics. You know, people of goodwill. This is a great day. This is a great moment. And uh, I'm just proud that we turned that corner. Took a long time, but we turned it. And so Mississippi has some specific things that they need to address. They've got to deal with, you know, now that that symbol is gone and a new symbol is going to be created, what's going to be the new attitude? What's going to be the new threshold of greatness? Right? When is Mississippi, now that Mississippi after 126 years has proven that they're tired of a symbol that doesn't represent the best of Mississippi, then what is it going to take for them to conquer the next stigma and take Mississippi off the list of being the poorest state in the nation? <clears throat> what is it going to take to, to get rid of that? designation? What are you willing to do? What policies are you willing to push? Regardless of a liberal or conservative philosophy, it has to be an agreement that Mississippi can no longer now be the poorest state in the nation. There's no excuse. You've proven that the power of that symbol no longer sways. And the mindset that gave that symbol power should be gone too. Which means that instead of seeing a man with a knee on his neck, how about Mississippi getting its knee off the neck of poor people, of black people. And everybody stand up and fight and achieve and innovate 
and be the dominant force that it once was without having to rely on chattel slavery or any other peculiar institution that's detrimental to a major segment of its population. And I hope that Mississippi's up for that challenge now. I think they are. And I think now that this is out of the way, the group of legislators that make up the Mississippi Legislative Black Caucus now can say without distraction, this is what we want. This is what we need. This is what's in the best interest, not just for our constituents, but for every constituent in the state of Mississippi. This is the agenda that's going to bring young folks back to Mississippi instead of driving them away. That's the conversation that needs to be happening there. But nationally, in my lifetime, we have to address how do we really prove that Black Lives Matter within our community and how do we determine what our true wealth is? The true wealth of a black life. Let's get into that. <clears throat> in the days, in the podcast ahead. Until next time.